my name is Laura Wood and today I'm going to be talking to you about lots of different things, about writing and how I became a writer, about the books that I've written, about how I go about writing a book and we're going to talk a little bit about um, setting a story and creating atmosphere in a story but that's for later on. Um, so before I get started, can I just ask how many of you guys like to write? Few people? Few people. Okay, how many people don't like to write? Yeah? Okay, a few people. So a few people who don't like it, a few people who do like it, and a lot of people who have mixed feelings <laughs> about it. That's fine. Um, I always really liked to write when I was kind of your age, but when I was about um, 18, I think, I stopped writing for a few years. I didn't write anything at all because I became incredibly nervous about writing and I thought um, I wasn't good enough to write and I thought that the idea of putting down what I had in my head onto a piece of paper or onto a computer screen seemed suddenly like an insurmountable object, like it was so difficult, it was so hard to get started that I kind of gave up. Um, and that was really sad for me because I think actually if you had asked me all that time I would have said, oh yes, I'm a writer, I love to write, but I wasn't actually writing anything, which let me just tell you that's the first rule of being a writer is you really do have to write stuff down at some point. You can't, you cannot get away with it, you can't be a writer and not write things. So, um, yeah, so I thought I would tell you a bit about my um, kind of road to publication because it's a bit of a weird one. But first of all, these are all my books, and it, this is really, really, really exciting for me because I can, I've got a point on here so I can show you. This book here, Vote for Effie, um, is my new book that's coming out in January, and apart from me and my publisher, you're the first people to see the cover for this because we literally finalised the cover design yesterday. Um, so I, I didn't even have it in the presentation that I prepared, and I had to go back and put it in so that you could see it. Um, so, A Sky Painted Gold, which is my young adult book, that came out in July, um, but I also wrote the Poppy Pin series here, um, which is kind of a middle grade book, so it's, it's aimed towards readers who are between sort of 8 and 12, 13, um, and Effie is kind of sits somewhere in the middle of those two, um, so I'm excited about having that there and it's really nice for me seeing them all on the screen like that because I feel like I've achieved good stuff. Um, but yeah, so I thought I would tell you a little bit about my journey to becoming a writer. Um, first of all, here are some insanely adorable pictures of me as a very small person. Um, the lighting in here isn't that great so you can't fully appreciate how cute I was but I was very, <laughs> very, very cute. Um, and I always love to read, I've always been a big reader, but I know a lot of writers who weren't big readers until they were much older, which I always think is really interesting, that you don't necessarily have to have been a big reader all your life to, to become a good writer. But the thing that all writers do have in common is that they are, at the time that they are writing, they are big readers. I really don't think it's physically possible for you to be a decent writer unless you read a lot because you need that experience, you need that connection with language, you need that connection with storytelling, you learn so much just from picking up a book and reading it. So I was always a big reader. <laughs> These pictures 
are going to tell you a lot about later on when I explain to you that I do not illustrate my own books. Uh, these are, I don't know if you can see them at all really, it's possibly good if you can't, but these are from my earliest series of books. Um, they, are, they were the tale of Mr Moonhead, his nemesis Mushy Pea Man, and uh, his friend Carrot Man, very imaginatively titled <coughs> superheroes to me. Um, so these, these actually, my grandparents kept these. These are the first kind of books that I remember writing. And I used to, when I stayed with them in Cornwall, I used to write all these kind of stories and put these pictures in. And I really like it because they come from a time when I, I wasn't second guessing myself and being hard on myself. I just wrote them because I So they're not the best stories in the world, but they represent something really special, I think. Um, oh, and I should say, sorry, I will leave time at the end for you guys to ask questions, but if you have any questions along the way, I'm sure you're full of questions about Mr Moonhead, um, then just bung your hand up whenever, that's absolutely fine. In the last session they were asking me questions the whole way through and it was lovely. Um, this picture is a picture of me signing my first ever book contract with the world's fanciest fountain pen. And the story behind that is that my first book was published because it won a prize. <coughs> so I said to you before, I hadn't written anything for a really long time. I'd been very nervous about writing. And then I saw a competition advertised and it said, to enter this competition, you need to write 5,000 words of the beginning of a story. And you need to write a one page synopsis, an outline of the whole book. And I thought, Okay, well, a whole book is too scary, but 5,000 words is maybe okay. So I wrote the sample and I wrote the outline. And um, something that makes me go a bit hot and cold when I think about it now is I really, really nearly didn't enter it into the competition because I was so afraid that people wouldn't like it or I thought it was rubbish. And I thought, why am I embarrassing myself by sending this in? It's going to be this amazing thing. And they had over a thousand entries into this competition. Um, but I didn't know that at the time, luckily, because that really might have put me off. Um, but I'm so, so I really, I sent it into the competition on the last day that you could send it in. And I think about that a lot now, because if I had not entered that competition, my life would be completely different. I definitely wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. I wouldn't have published my book because I was too scared to share my writing with anyone else. And I, so I completely understand that impulse, and I think every writer does. But it, if you want to write, it's really important that you try and open yourself up to sharing your work with people. So what happened next was I got an email from my um, <coughs> publisher, Scholastic. They are my publisher now. And uh, my editor, Lena, and she said, um, Dear Laura Wood, we're considering including Poppy Pym and the Fairy's Curse on the shortlist for the competition. Um, but to go on the shortlist for the competition, you have to have a full manuscript of the whole book. Um, is that okay? And I wrote back to her and I said, yes, of course it's okay. Of course I definitely, yes, of course I have that. Just out of interest, when will you need that by? And she said, we'll need it in two weeks and I said great I shall just start to 
polish that then and make sure it's in the best state possible. And then I didn't leave the house for two weeks and I was like a feral animal and I didn't speak to anyone and I, and I didn't wash and I sat in, at my desk like uh, hammering out these words and hating it and just being like, this is terrible, but this is, this is such a great opportunity. Oh my God, this is terrible, but it's good, it's terrible. And, um, and so I managed to write the first draft of this book, which was for just over 40,000 words in two weeks. Um, and then, in a completely bizarre twist, it won the whole competition. <laughs> um, and so that's a picture of me signing the contract at the, where they announced the winner of the competition, um, because the award was sponsored by a pen company called Montegrappa, who make these incredible fountain pens. And so one of the prizes was that I won this pen that's worth more than my car and that I can't write with because I'm too scared to touch it and I can't show it to anyone because I'm too scared to take it anywhere. But it's very, very beautiful. Um, so that was one of the things that I won. But also, if you go into writing books normally, what you would do is you would write your book you would work on a sample of it and you would get it really great, as great as you can. Then you would start sending it out to different agents and you would get lots of rejections. And then eventually, hopefully, you would get an agent and then you would work on your book with that person and you would polish it up and polish it up and polish it up. And then the agent would start sending it out to different publishers. And then hopefully one of the publishers would buy the book. So that's kind of the normal way that it would work, making a book, getting a book published. But for me, what happened with the competition was I went to bed one night and I had, no I had nothing. And then I woke up the next day and they told me that I'd won the competition. And I had an agent and a publisher and a publicist and a marketing team and a TV and film rights agent and this whole team of people who were suddenly working with me on this book. So it was a really, really weird way for it to happen, but it was obviously incredibly exciting um, and just a really nice kind of experience for me. And for a long time, I thought it, it was kind of strange because I thought my agent and my publisher were just being polite to me because I had won the competition, so they had to work with me. So I didn't really understand that they you know, that they did, they weren't under any pressure to keep publishing me. I thought, oh, this is going really well. Like, they're still feeling like they've got to be nice to me about publishing these books. And, and uh, but that's not the case. Now, three years later, I kind of know it's okay. And they, they're happy to be working with me and it's fine. But it kind of messes with your head in a weird way, having it happen that way. So that's a picture of um, that moment where I'm looking a bit dazed and shell-shocked and happy. Um, this is a picture that I took the other day of a birthday party that I threw for my own book, which is a totally normal author thing to do. Um, this is, uh, it was three years since my first book had been published and um, it's really exciting because you can't really see in the picture because of the light, but behind the book there are all the um, translated editions. It's been translated into lots of different languages, German and Swedish and French and all sorts and the audiobooks where it's been translated into lots of different languages. Um, and the really strange effect of, that that has had on me is that it's convinced me that I speak fluent German, 
or fluent Swedish because I can open the books and know exactly what it says. So I trick myself into thinking that suddenly I've woken up and I, I can read Swedish now. That's fine, you guys, I speak Swedish. Um, but unfortunately, that's not the case. So that's kind of my journey from then to now. <laughs> um, and, and as I showed you on the, on the slide before, What's really nice is that now I'm at the point where there are six books and I'm working on more. I have three books out next year. So I'm very busy and I'm writing full time. Um, and it's really, really exciting. But obviously, you guys can ask me any questions you have now or later about authoring and that sort of side of things. Um, but what I thought I would do, if it's okay, is um, read a little bit from the beginning of A Sky Painted Gold, because what I'd like us to think about is to think about writing setting and the way that we use language to talk about setting the scene. Um, so I'm going to read the prologue to the book to give you an idea of what I mean by that and how I try to use um, different images and different language in the book to give not just a very clear idea of the setting but also of the kind of atmosphere that the, that the story takes place in. So I always like this bit, having a nice reading, it feels like being back in primary school or something, doesn't it? Yeah, you all look like you're getting really cosy, lovely. Okay. It all started with an apple. Trouble often does, I suppose, and this particular apple was a real troublemaker. A pendragon, red-fleshed and sweet, that I stole from someone else's orchard. I don't know why I chose that particular day to make my way over to the island. After years of staring longingly across the water, it seemed suddenly urgent that I make it there, that I put my feet on the shore. When I arrived, I practically fell into the orchard, plucking the shining red apple from its branch without a second thought. With the first bite of that apple, I was lost. By then, the Cardew house, in all its sprawling, faded beauty, had not seen a single friendly face, or an unfriendly one for that matter, in over five years. The walled orchard, like the house, had been abandoned, growing tangled and wild until I crept in and started helping myself. After that first taste, I didn't even try to stay away. I came back the next day and the next, always exploring a tiny bit further, pushing deeper into the secret island, making each part of it my own. The house itself was on top of the island, a grand old Georgian building with far-reaching views. The front facing towards the village on the mainland was long and low, with tall windows cut into the honey-coloured stone and tangled ivy. Rough steps reached down through overgrown gardens to a sloping gravel driveway that stretched to meet the causeway. At the back, a huge lawn overlooked the changeable sea, at times a dazzling turquoise, at others a murky, mysterious grey-green. The orchard that first drew me to the island curled around one side of the house, 
groaning with apples or really skinny cherries or heavy velvet plums, depending on the time of year. On the other side of the building, more crumbling steps wound their way down to a small hidden cove of golden sand where the sheltered waters were still and warm. It was a jewel, this island, a treasure left alone and unloved for too long. A restless feeling hung over my visit and I knew that it was only a matter of time before my curiosity moved <coughs> beyond the grounds to the building itself. I began by skirting around the house as though afraid of antagonising it. When I discovered a broken window latch on the ground floor, it felt as though the decision had been made for me. The old building should have been unwelcoming in its emptiness, with the furniture draped in sheets and the shutters closed up tight. But to me, it felt calm and friendly. Odd shafts of light cut through the gloom here and there, illuminating clouds of dancing dust particles and giving the place an air of drowsy sadness. It seemed like the sleeping princess in a fairy tale, just waiting to be brought back to life. For almost a year after that first apple, I escaped the house at any opportunity to raid the neglected library and to curl up comfortably on a faded oriental rug, enjoying the quiet. My own home was never quiet, but all that noise didn't stop me from feeling lonely at times. Somehow, despite being more alone than ever, I never felt lonely when I came here. Slowly, I began to feel that the sleeping house and I were getting to know one another. I daydreamed about what it would be like if it was full of people, about the conversations they would have about the parties they might throw and the way the rooms would come to life full of blazing light. I wrote pages of nonsense, scribbling furiously in my notebook, or I read detective novels and ate stolen apples, throwing the cores into the fire that I lit to warm the huge, empty sitting room. In the end, it was that fire that gave me away. It was a cold, wet Friday when I first saw them. Grey sheets of rain pounded outside while waves hammered against the rocks to the back of the house. I was oblivious to the noise, quite happily lost in an Agatha Christie novel, making myself sick on too much stolen fruit. I'd been there for a couple of hours, maybe more, when I heard a sound. Something new. Something different, something more than the usual groans of the old house settling. I froze, the book dangling from my fingers, and strained my ears, listening carefully. Voices. Someone was here. Someone had finally come. And more than one someone. I heard the low rumble of a man's voice, and the higher melody of a woman as well. Already I could tell that these voices belonged, that they fit into the house like missing puzzle pieces. Footsteps clipped along the floors, echoing through the empty hallways, growing louder as they came closer and closer to where I sat still frozen. 
my heart thundered as though someone had broken in, although the only intruder here was me. I dropped the book and slipped over to the window as quickly and as quietly as I could, though my legs trembled at this abrupt breaking open of a space that I had come to consider so completely my own. I threw one shaking leg over the sill and my bare foot burrowed in the long wet grass below. There, half in and half out of the house, I realised that the voices were almost on top of me. I scrambled out of the window and stood safely on the other side, holding my breath and pressing myself flat against the wall. Then I heard the door to the sitting room open and the footsteps stopped. Robert, who on earth has lit the fire? The girl's voice was clear and precise, ringing through the air like a knife against glass. I didn't think we were expected. I didn't wait to hear any more. As fast as my legs would carry me, I darted around the side of the house and down the crumbling steps, across the crunching gravel driveway that led to the causeway. Luckily, the tide was out, and as I sped past it, I saw that the strangers had arrived in a dazzling blue car. With a glance over my shoulder and a small whoop of exhilaration at finding no one chasing after me, I plunged along the cobbled path, running until my chest ached, filling my lungs with jagged gulps of salty air. I was laughing now, the runaway laugh of the thief who knew she'd getting away with it. I dared myself to turn around to look back at the house. A silhouette appeared in the doorway. A man, tall and silent and too late to catch me. The wind whipped my hair around my face, stinging my flushed cheeks, and the rain had finally stopped. I looked down and I was still holding a shiny red apple in my hand. So, um, <laughs> so that's the beginning of The Sky Painted Gold, which is the story of a 17-year-old girl called Lou who lived in a small fishing village in Cornwall. Um, it's set during the summer of 1929, and as you've probably gleaned from the bit that I just read, she lives in this small village, but it's attached to an island by a causeway that she starts sneaking onto where there's this old abandoned house that belongs to the Cardew family. And then this summer, the Cardew siblings come back to the house and open it up to have a holiday there. And they bring all their friends from London and they have these big kind of Gatsby style parties. Um, and Lou, is so enthralled by this because it's so different to what she's used to and she's at a point where she's feeling very claustrophobic in her life and she doesn't really know what to do with herself and she's at that point where she's got to start making decisions about what the next bit of her life is going to look like and so she sneaks over to try and catch a glimpse of, of what's going on at the island and she gets kind of drawn in to the lives of these siblings and she starts to sort of see the different tensions and the kind of simmering secrets that lie underneath the surface of all this glamorous living. Um, so it's partly the story of her kind of 
trying to get to the bottom of what's actually happening with the card used. But, but mostly it's a story about Lou as a character who wants something different from the kind of life that she's been raised in and she wants something different from her family but she feels disloyal about wanting something different and she also doesn't really know what other opportunities there are so it also feels kind of like fruitless that she's so um, frustrated she doesn't know what to do with herself so it's about her kind of working out what she's going to do next um, so how many you guys are from around here so how many of you know St Michael's Mount yeah so did you did you know that did you recognize that I had stolen St Michael's Mount <laughs> yes um, so uh, this is uh, obviously St Michael's Mount and what I did was I ended up um, taking St Michael's Mount and sort of pushing it a bit further along the coast so that the village that Lou lives in is based on is kind of based on Mausel um, they're all given different names so they're not exactly the same place um, but I think this is one of the things that's quite helpful when you start thinking about writing a setting is that there are kind of three different ways you can go one of them is to completely unleash your imagination and create a completely new space. How many people read kind of fantasy and science fiction and stuff like who knows? Yeah, I do too. Um, and sometimes the world building in that is the thing that I find the most exciting when people are kind of so imaginative and it's creating these totally new worlds. And then on the other side of that, you have writers who will set books in real places and they'll use street they'll set it in london and they'll use all the street names and they'll reference specific buildings and everywhere will be a real place and you can walk in the footsteps of the characters in the novel and then this book kind of sits in the middle of those two things which is that i i took places that were real that i felt a connection with that i felt were really beautiful or had something interesting about them and then I sort of twisted them around to fit better what I needed for the story. So I moved, So I wanted the village to be uh, bigger and, and more kind of higgledy-piggledy than Mara's Island was. So I moved the island around and I made the island a bit bigger. And I put this house on top of it instead of the castle. So it's, it's, it's a really helpful way of kind of looking at things. But also, um, I think even when you do the kind of high fantasy world building quite often you'll find that you still it's still helpful to draw on real places or you draw on real experiences to help you to build those fantasy worlds so think, thinking about settings and being open to um, different settings for stories as you're just kind of moving around the world is always really helpful I think um, and having this kind of visual way of thinking about things has really helped me with my writing so how, so the, a, a big thing that helped me with writing this book, uh, particularly with it being historical fiction, was using Pinterest. How many, do you guys, any of you guys use Pinterest? Not very many, I don't think. Yeah, a few of you do. Um, it's really such a good tool for writing um, because it's kind of digital pin board and you can, um, you can pin images that are on the website for Pinterest from other people's pins, but you can also pin them from any website where you see something. So you have a kind of collage of stuff in one place that's really helpful um so this is my uh, sky painted well a bit of my sky painted gold pinterest board it's long and you scroll through it um 
And you can see that if you go on to Pinterest and look for a sky painted gold, you can see this board. And it's really helpful because I pinned images of houses that reminded me of the sort of house that I was writing about, images of clothes, real clothes from the 1920s, cars, buildings, settings, characters, people that I thought looked a bit like a character that I was trying to describe. And having those kind of visual points of reference was really helpful because if I felt like I was getting stuck in the writing, I could just go onto my Pinterest board and kind of scroll through it and it immediately gave me a feeling of what I was trying to aim for. Um, so these are four of the images that are on my Pinterest board. I don't know, can you guys see them okay? Um, so what I'd love to know is what you guys think of these pictures, if there's any particular, anything that you notice about them, if there's any emotion that they bring to mind. It can be about one picture, it can be about all of them, absolutely anything that you, that you, that, that first comes to mind when you're looking at these images. I know it's hard, yeah. I like the third image because it, it feels like you want to go into that space and then close the door, so it's almost like a secret space. A oh, absolutely. That's, that yeah, light. completely. So, so I love that image and I pinned it to my board, not really knowing why except i the, the feeling that it gave yeah. me was so right and it's exactly that it's that there's there's this kind of golden room and you can't really see the light in here very well but it's really kind of golden and welcoming um and you want to go into it but you're sort of outside in the shadows and that felt like a really good representation to me of how lou is as a character because it in those kind of not 1920s novels like um, Evelyn War novels or um, Great Gatsby even, quite often there's a ca the, the narrator is a character who's kind of on the outside looking in and they're, to and, and they're not quite in the middle of it, but they're sort of watching everyone. So I like the idea of that for a character, but that's really nice because that is exactly how I feel about the picture as well. Anyone else? Anything? Yeah? Yeah, perfect. So it's really helpful when you're writing um, historical fiction to kind of look at, to have these images that are of people at that specific moment. Because sometimes when you're reading about it, it's harder because you know you're kind, you're making up in your mind what it looks like, but it's harder to get it exactly right. So with the images, I found that much easier. So yeah, it's, it is, it's this great party that's, that's actually from 1929. So I felt like, okay, so this is the kind of feeling and this is the kind of things they'd be wearing and this is the kind of setting. So that's really helpful. Yeah? Gold and warm, that's so important. And, and that's really good that you noticed that because one of the things that I found really interesting about doing the board was that I didn't choose the, the images based on the colours or anything. But then when they were all in one place, I suddenly realised it was like the book had a colour scheme. And I was like, oh, wow, look at that. That's so strange. Like, there are these colours, which then came through in the writing that I started putting these colours in because they had this really warm feeling to them. So picking up on the warmth is really good. Yeah, in all the images, I think there's that kind of golden warmth. And that's really good observation. Yeah? The ones with the boats kind of remind me of like my childhood because like we would always, when it was sunny, go down to go swimming and my uncle's now a fisherman so we'd go 
Perfect. That's perfect. That's lovely. That's but that's that's how I feel about it as well because I didn't grow up in Cornwall, but my grandparents lived here, so I used to come all the time in the summer holidays and and at Christmas and stuff, and and I have the same feeling about it of being when we would go down to the beach and it being like that and with the boats and it having that feeling of kind of nostalgia about it and and really happy memories attached to it of those kind of moments. That's really nice. Anyone else? Anyone over here? Anything? It doesn't, it can be absolutely anything at all. Anyone else? No? Okay, well, the, the, um, this image here is, uh, is actually a bathroom from 1929. It's a sketch of a bathroom from 1929. So, again, that's the sort of thing that's really helpful to have access to. Because if someone says to you, if you're writing your story and you're setting it in 1929 and then you have, and then you have someone staying in a very fancy mansion on an island and you have them going into their room and then you suddenly go, Where, <laughs> where's she going to have a bath? Like, where's she going to wash? And you think, would they have, what would they have? Would they have, would they even have plumbing in the house? Like, would they... And, and so it was really helpful to be able to find kind of things that match up because when you're writing historical fiction, you often come up against really weird questions as you're writing, like things that you haven't thought about. Like, um, and like because it's in the 1920s, there's quite a lot of smoking in the book, which is probably not a good thing. But, um, but when I was writing about people smoking, I suddenly thought, would they be using lighters or would they be using matches? When were lighters? invented and when did lighters become a popular thing and actually not everyone in the 20s would have used a lighter so it's really funny how you'll just be happily writing a scene and then suddenly you'll come up against something and be like oh well I, I can't believe this is even a question that I have to ask but now I have to go and google it and your google search history makes you look like a completely insane mad woman and you start googling all sorts of weird stuff um but yeah so I found using Pinterest and thinking visually about things really helpful. Um, this is an example of <laughs> why I am not allowed to illustrate my own books. Um, so I thought I would just tell you a little bit about how the books get made because I, um, until I was a writer, I had no idea how books happened. I, I like buying books, but I had no idea how you went from a book being an idea in someone's head to, to physically holding a book in your hand. So this is part of the design journey for me, which I really enjoy. Um, so the poppy books are illustrated and I uh, will usually give the um, illustrator like a description. So if she's drawing characters, the, the illustrator of the poppy books is called Beatrice Spencer Rennie. She's amazing and I'll give her a description of the characters and then she'll do a sketch and send it to me and then I'll say, oh yes, maybe like that, but maybe like his eyes are a bit bigger or he's a bit smaller or whatever it is. Um, and then she'll send me some altered sketches. But with maps, um, which they all have, unfortunately, I can't write her a description of the map, so I have to draw them. And it's honestly the most awful thing in the whole world to be so, how, how, how many of you guys are good at art? Or enjoy art, at least? 
Okay, if you, how many of you are terrible at art? <laughs> Hi, <laughs> you are my people. So it's really mortifying for me when I have to do this because I think, oh no, I've got to send this map in to this professional artist and she's got to make sense of it. And it's so bad that there are things like, um, if you can see this blob here, um, well, what I was trying to communicate was that there should be some like little extra touches on the map. So I wanted to have like a duck on the river, but then I had to write a label saying this is a duck because, because it was so not at all clear <laughs> that that's what it was. And I had to write a label saying this is a fish. And I had to write a label up here. This is supposed to be a used car uh, kind of sales room. And the note here says, uh, this is a car park and there would be lots of cars in it but I'm not even going to try and draw those um, and then you can see some of the things are highlighted in yellow and that's because she does put labels on things like here it says cemetery and that says to the school and stuff so some of them need to be included but the ones that are in yellow are just the notes that I've given to her to say to try and explain my terrible drawing um, so this is what the first iteration of that looks like. It looks like this and I'll take a picture of it or I scan it and I email it over to her. And then she sends me this, which is a rough sketch of based on my description or based on my drawing. Um, and as you can see, it's already hugely improved. It's got things like ducks that look like ducks on it. Um, and so then I'll give her notes. Like I, I for this one, um, there's a shop here, so you can see some of them, like this is a tea room and it's shaped like a teapot, and this is the bookshop and it's shaped like a book. Um, so for some of them she's done that, and for some of them she's done drawn them as buildings and labelled them. And this one here, which she drew as a building, is in the book is a place called Penny's Place, and it's, uh, <laughs> it's an important setting in the book, and it's the... It's owned by a lady called Penny Farthing, and she owns the largest collection of cat-based collectibles for miles and miles around. So you walk in and you're suddenly surrounded by everything is just covered in cats, millions of cats staring at you, and there are lots of cats running around as well. Um, so I said, for that one, oh, it would be nice because it's not clear from the name what sort of shop it is if we had like a little kind of cat, picture of a cat there. Um, and also things like, oh, maybe could we put some little ghosts in the cemetery and some notes like that. So I send the notes back to her and then this is the finished thing that ends up being in the book. Um, and it's really cool with this because this is what I was talking about with world building. Like this, this is a, Brimwell is the town that Poppy's school is near. And it's completely fictional. I made it up. I mean, bits of it are based on bit things that I've seen, but it's made. It's a made-up town. So it's so much fun to make something up like that and to create that world, and then to have an amazing artist like B make a map of it. And you're just like, wow, that's so strange. Like someone's someone's just spent their their days drawing a map of this town that I invented in my brain seems very strange but you can see things like the, there's a cat or well, maybe you can't see very well but this is a cat's face now some little ghosts in the cemetery things like that so um 
that's kind of the design process and we do that a little bit with the cover as well kind of go backwards and forwards about how we're going to make sure that everything's exactly right um so the next thing that i wanted to talk to you about was this idea of creating atmosphere i don't know you had a good experience of me reading from my book but hopefully what I was trying to do was to convey a sense of atmosphere in that writing it's not just about saying here's the empty house here's the furniture under the sheets you know I walk through the door I'm in the room it's big whatever it's also about trying to use pacing and language and descriptions and specific images to try and make that setting at feel kind of I don't know I wanted it to have a sort of dreamy feel about it that kind of sleepy abandoned feel and then to help heighten the tension when she feels like there's someone who's coming to the house and to change the kind of rhythm of the sentences but anyway so I wanted us to think a bit about creating atmosphere so I know this is a bit hard because the the picture isn't super clear but it's a picture of a kind of like what you would expect to find for a sort of haunted house picture and I wondered if there's anything you can either that you can see in the picture or if you can't see the picture very well what you would expect to find in a, in a kind of picture like that of a spooky house to, to create a sort of spooky atmosphere yeah Exactly, that's such a good observation. So immediately, it's it's instead of it being sunny and like a like a cheerful day, to create that atmosphere of something scary becomes really gloomy and dark. And that's a really good observation. Yeah. The trees have no leaves on them. The have no leaves on them. Again, so instead of so if the trees were kind of really lush and full of green leaves, there's something about that that's a lot less scary than seeing. These, they're like fingers, aren't they? These kind of dead trees with their spidery branches and all lit up against the thing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah? Everything's kind of destroyed. Absolutely. So everything's in like a really shocking state, like it's been abandoned, like things are really like not well looked after. It's really in a bad state. That's a really good observation. So that adds to the kind of atmosphere as well. Yeah? Only one window is lit. Yes. It's so much scarier having one window lit than none, isn't it? Because it's like, it's not complete, it looks abandoned, but you know there's, so, there's something in there. If it was all lit up, you'd kind of feel all right about it. If it was all dark, it would be like, oh, that's not great. But because there's one window lit, it gives you that, that tickly feeling at your back, doesn't it? Of like, oh my God, what's in there? <laughs> yeah, really good. Yeah. Absolutely. I think there are, I think you can't see them, but I think you're right about the graves. I think there are gravestones in the front of the picture. But so it gives you what, what's really interesting about that is that you're, is that what you're saying is that the way that the, the scene is set gives you, um, it's not just about describing it, is it? It's about giving you a feeling of what's going to come, about what's going to be behind the doors, about what the house is going to be like inside. So by describing the outside like that, it gives you a, a kind of 
that feeling of slight feeling of dread that you don't know what you're going to find when you go inside absolutely brilliant yeah Yes, yeah, really good. So shadows and light really important when you're talking about, and that's really helpful when you're writing, I think, when you're thinking about creating kind of uh, a spooky atmosphere, is thinking about using shadows. And, and as you say, like it's a very dark picture. That's really good, yeah? Yes, uh, yes, absolutely. So you have these kind of, the colour palette is really washed out, lots of grey and brown and black and dark grey, definitely. Yes, yes, the, the size of it is really important. I think that's a really good observation because you feel intimidated by it because it's like looming, this big looming presence. But also I think that gives you a sense of, like we were saying about that feeling of, all oh, what's, inside what's waiting inside when it's big like that you feel like god there could be any there could be loads of rooms that that somehow having more space is more scary somehow that's a really good observation yeah and the fact just just carry on from the point you've made the fact that you have to walk up steps towards it it's going to feel much more intimidating if you're walking yeah exactly and again when you think about right if you think about using that in a scene and writing it that's what you're imagining isn't it you know you're going to have people walking up the steps and you know that the reader's going to be going, don't go, oh my God, you idiot, don't go in there, don't go in there. But like having the steps that you have to walk up to get there just heightens the tension, building more tension before you get into it. Absolutely, really, yeah, brilliant. Okay, that's so good. So this image, have any of you guys heard of Christine McConnell? Okay, you will. She's an amazing artist and she makes, she bakes stuff and, and in amazing shapes and she's about to have a, a really big Netflix series and it's going to be really good and you should watch it. But this is, um, actually, this is she also makes these kind of incredible photos that she takes of her parents' house where she decorates it and takes some pictures. So I wondered, I, I know, again, you can't see it really well, but... Do you guys feel like this is a spooky? How many of you feel like this is a spooky image? Yeah? 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 Okay. What is it about the image that could be spooky? Yeah? The fact that it's so not normal that there must be something wrong with it. Yeah, or it's like it's too perfect. Like there's a sense of, there's a kind of feeling. What's really interesting about creating a feeling of unease and spookiness is that there there are two sort of opposite ways that you can do it and one is to go down the dark creepy haunted house but also there can be something really spooky about something that's just a bit too perfect that's just a bit too shiny so that when you start to look closer at it you start to see that there are problems yeah it's like white stuff around the windows and then all the windows there is yeah there is when you start looking at it closely this becomes the scariest thing you've ever seen so there are there are cobwebs in all the windows so again that feeling that what's outside and what's inside are not necessarily the same thing like oh it looks nice on the outside but there's something weird going on, on the inside and up here can you see there's like a figure of a woman like this in the window in white um, it's really, it's really spooky. Anything else? Anything else about this? Yeah? Um, the woman in white, the doorway, it comes like 
Yeah, she is. She's and she's um you can't really tell in the in the picture on there, but she has she's holding out like sweets to the children coming up the path and kind of trying to sort of beckon them into the house. Anyone else? Yeah? Yes, there are great. I mean, when you start looking at it, you're like, oh, she's not actually being that subtle. Can you see here? There are, there are gingerbread graves with people's initials on them um, at the side here. Yeah, anyone else notice anything about this that you could talk about to create some atmosphere? Yeah? It's kind of how, like, in the background, it's kind of a normal sort of modern sort of background, but then you just see something completely out of the ordinary just fill up the space. Yeah, com exactly that. So it's kind of, so it's that feeling of like this is safe and normal and I know this juxtaposed with something that seems totally wrong and out of place. So it that it's that like tension between the two things that makes it makes you kind of oh. So with this one you don't immediately necessarily get the feeling as you did with the first picture of it being like this is a spooky setting. But when you start looking at it it's like a kind of really creeping feeling of Oh, this isn't very nice. So that's a really good observation, yeah? It's funny because they're also saying that like the deeper you look into it, the more like scarier it gets. At first, when I first saw it, I thought like it kind of looks like something like Dr. Seuss would think of. Yes, like, yeah. Like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah. And then the, the deeper you look, like it gets more scarier and then you notice that it's not like that. That's so brilliant. Yeah, it's 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 almost like because it's so over the top at first, it's so almost cartoony and like um, like as if there are going to be like munchkins singing around it and stuff. That you think it's this kind of light scene, but then as you say, the closer you look, and that's what makes it kind of spooky. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you can't see the gingerbread men very well, but the gingerbread men up here on the house. They're kind of in this weird pose and they also have like quite angry faces, um, which is not what you typically associate with a gingerbread man, so those. But also I think the white cat is a really good observation because um, sometimes when we talk about the spooky house, the last one that we looked at, we would think, oh, there might be a black cat around, right? Because um, we, we all really like black cats, but we use them as a sort of shorthand like everyone understands that if you're in a spooky setting and you see a black cat you know what that means so when in this one to have a white cat in there it's really playing with that idea that it's like the opposite of having the black cat but it's still the same effect that's really good that you notice that yeah it's all the it's it's so funny isn't it because when we talked about in the last one we talked about the color palette being like gray black brown we talked about it being important that it was shadowy and dark and this is the absolute opposite of that but as you say because it's so perfect it you think that's suspicious and then she's kind of trying to get the children to come into the perfect house and that becomes something quite quite creepy yeah Yes. You have like all the normal houses and suddenly you've got this like perfect house. 
and it would be and it would be almost as like off-putting as seeing like an abandoned house or something it's because it's so because it's jarring in the context of it that's really that's really good yeah I'm just thinking how creepy it would look at night because you know how it's got the six lights at the front mm. can we just imagine like if those are on and then everything else is just like in a dark but we're creepy yeah I think you're absolutely right and I also think then I, it would be interesting to think about how it would be lit from the inside like I mean, I think it works really well that you have this figure in the top window in this picture because you don't notice it straight away, but it's the, it's really scary when you do notice it and it seems so out of place. So it'd be really interesting to see how it would all be lit up at night. Yeah. Anyone else? Anything else? I just, it just looks like it's going to disintegrate in a minute because it's all like dripping because you've got all these kind of like... Yeah, all the stuff around the door and everything. It looks like it's, it's just kind of appeared and then it's going to just melt away. Yeah, I think that I think that too. I think it has that feeling of um, uh, which well, gives it a sort of like desperate feeling as well. Like it's kind of like get the kids in the house, yeah. get the kids in the house. And um, I think it's supposed to be obviously like kind of a play on Hansel and Gretel yeah. with her holding out the sweets and and um, you can't really see that the boy down here is picking up sweets from the path. Uh, yeah, and all the candy canes yeah. and. Um, so there's a sense that she's trying to kind of lure them into this perfect place that things aren't really as nice as they seem. So I always think that's really interesting because when you start thinking about writing about setting and creating atmosphere, there are so many different ways that you can go about it, but it's just about taking the time to think about how you want to approach it, yeah? Which of the photos do you think looks more scary, like the actual haunted house or this one? I, th I think that this is the scarier picture, but I think if you look at, if you just look at them quickly, then you would, ev as we all did, everyone would say the first one is the scarier picture. So it's, it depends on kind of what effect you need, I suppose. Like if you want something that's very instant, like in your face, that people understand that they're in this scary atmosphere, then you maybe go for the first one. But the second one I think is really interesting. Yeah. I know it's good, isn't it? So it's like it's almost like it's like everything, even the house is saying like, "Come in, children." Come in. It reminds me of like Hocus Pocus and the singing to the children and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the shepherd's crook is like traditionally a symbol of protection, whereas this effect it might not be absolutely and in fact her whole she's very beautiful that's her that's the artist christine mcconnell in the picture she's very beautiful and the whole image is you know choosing the long white dress and the crook and it's it's absolutely this image of innocence but in a way like with the picture the fact that it's so innocent the fact that it's so sweet and nice is what actually makes it really disturbing and what makes it much scarier that's really good, yeah. So there are lots of things about it. Did you have one? It kind of reminds me of like Coraline, the fact that it's like so perfect and then there are like the little things that kind of make it slowly, slowly become more and more creepy. Yeah, absolutely. So it's like this kind of creeping, shivery dread because at first glance you think, oh yeah, that's nice, that's lovely. And then as you start to look at it more and more, it, there's so much going on under the surface that it becomes really spooky. Yeah, absolutely. Okay? That was really good. That was really good, you guys. Um, so we've just got a couple of minutes left, so I'm going to...
just skip through all this because you were too good on the um on the uh with all your suggestions so um we've talked about a lot there <laughs> um so i just want to see if you guys have any questions for me really me or leslie note um yeah so if you have any questions oh sorry you will get a microphone shoved in your face but don't worry about it <laughs> it's fine i have one too um yes about writing or about the stuff that we've been talking about or about the books or anything at all yeah oh sorry <laughs> I think different people do it different ways, but the, I think usually you would write the whole book because if an agent likes the work, then they'll write back to you and say, I've read the baby something and I really like it, so now can you send me the whole thing? And you don't want to be in the situation that I was in with the competition where you then say, yes, of course, and then you have to write it very quickly. So I think usually you would think about writing the whole thing first before you send it off, at least with your first book, with trying to get the agent in place. Is that, are you interested in writing? Yeah, maybe. It's quite difficult because no one really talks about that side of it. Um, and until I was doing it, I didn't know how it works. I didn't know how books got made. I've been doing it for sort of just over three years now, and I still feel like all the time I'm finding out things about how it works and how the process works. But yeah, I think you'd want to make sure that the bit that you were sending off was really, 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 really great, as great as you can get it, but you would also want to have the full thing as well. Thanks. Sorry, got to wait for the... <laughs> How long did you book books for? Okay, well, I, I'm told that I write very fast. <laughs> um, but a first draft of a book doesn't take me too long. Um, with the middle grade book, it usually takes me about four to six weeks to write the first draft. And the first draft of that is usually about 40,000 words. And, but because m at first my p publishers didn't know about how I had written the first book, but then once they found out, I got in trouble because they were like, oh, so you can write a book in two weeks, can you? Well, <laughs> let's go, let's go. Um, so yes, so usually it would take about that long. With the young adult stuff, which is longer, which is usually about 70,000 words, it'd be more like two months, maybe maybe 10 weeks. Um, but then there's quite a long process after that where I'll write a first draft of it and then I'll send it off to the editor and to my agent and they'll both give me notes and then I'll go in and rewrite lots of it and put new scenes in and we'll talk about the structure of the story and changing things around. Um, so it changes quite a lot in that one and then it goes back to them to read and then it comes back again with smaller things less things to do and I usually do kind of three or four edits on it like that and then there's a whole other side of it that I don't have anything to do with which is all the design the cover and the illustrations and that kind of thing that I'll be a little bit involved in but they have to have my bit first before they can do any of that stuff and then there's publicity and marketing and things and it also has to get printed 
So you have to send it to the printers a certain amount of time before the publication, so they have to work out your schedule back from that. So with the first ones, there was a year. My first book came out in September, and then the next September, my second book came out. And then after that, it was six months. So it, everything got tighter. And then now, it, God, it's all over the place. So like I said, I've got three out next year. So it's just mad. It's just mad all the time. But so it, it really differs. It takes different amounts of time to write it. But actually, writing it is only such a small part of it ending up as a book. Does that answer your question? That was a bit rambly, was it? <laughs> yeah? Where do you get most of your inspiration from? Oh, that's a great question. Um, well, I get inspiration from everywhere, really. I, I think a lot of the time I think about when I'm writing the middle grade books, I get inspiration from thinking about the sort of thing that I used to love to read when I was that age. Or I talk to my niece and my nephew who are that age and um, get inspiration from stories that I tell them or things that make them laugh. Um, and with the young adult stuff, it's more like the stuff that I would read now. So I, I don't know. It's such a funny, tricky thing, inspiration, because I think it's around you all the time. And it's just about um, kind of recognising when you have those moments of inspiration. So I get inspiration from all sorts of things. Like I was saying about um, St Michael's Mount, when I, the first time that I went there, I just just stood there and I was like wow this is like magic it's so strange like sometimes you can walk across to the thing and sometimes it's totally sealed off and just that little idea was enough to, to start me thinking about well who would live on who would live there and what would what would happen if you were cut off and what would so inspiration can be all, all over the place but it's a really good question I'm sorry that I don't have a really solid answer for it yeah Oh, sorry. <laughs> I just answer questions all day. Um, I, yeah, oh, that's kind. Well, I'm um, around and doing your signings and stuff later, so please, honestly, I feel free to come and ask me questions whenever. I'm sorry I didn't get a chance to answer them all. But thank you so much. You were really, really brilliant.